Plants are dying, fires are raging, rivers are drying up, and lake levels are falling. It's drought season out here in the western U.S. They're a natural phenomenon in the region. But what we're going through right now is historically bad, like perhaps the worst drought in 1,200 years. And scientists think that it's only going to get worse. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today is Monday, July 26, 2021. A mix of rising case numbers and unvaccinated millions moved Dr. Anthony Fauci to say the U.S. is going, quote, the wrong direction on coronavirus. The Olympics continue. Over the weekend, the U.S. picked up gold medals in fencing, shooting, swimming, and taekwondo. And cockatoos in Australia have learned how to open garbage bins. I, for one, welcome our new avian overlords. Today, we launched Drought Week, a five-part series looking at how water shortages across the West are profoundly changing life. We'll soup all around, from Oregon to the Sonoran Desert, from cities to national parks, from Joshua trees to lawns. So get your five-gallon buckets and put them next to you when you shower, because things are serious right now. To start Drought Week, it's only natural, pardon the pun, that we take the bigger view of the mega event first. So who better to coach us through drought anxiety than to listen to LA Times reporters that focus on Mother Nature's wrath? Yep, it's time for our monthly panel of peril, my colleagues of catastrophes, these experts of emergencies. In this episode, our third installment of our series, Masters of Disasters. Musica Maestro. Representing earthquakes is Ron Lynn, who also covers COVID-19 for The Times. Ron, which one scares you more right now? Still earthquakes. Who cares about pandemics? Always the earthquakes. In the Coastal California chair is Rosanna Shaw. Hey, Rosanna, can you ask the sea to erode the drought instead of our shoreline? (laughs) Yeah, if only nature worked like that. Oh, I thought it did. I thought you of all people could make it work. But I know you'll get those powers one day. And lastly, the busiest master of them all right now is Alex Wigglesworth, who's the LA Times wildfire reporter. I hope your vacation is going to involve a water slide, Alex. Wouldn't that be nice? Let's hope. We'll start with Alex, who's already sadly covering wildfires across the state. They only used to be a fall thing in California, but drought has basically turned them into a year-round affair. So Alex, how dry are you seeing different parts of the state right now? It's about as dry as it gets. Vegetation in most of the state is record dry for this calendar date. As of late June, it was drier than it normally would be at the peak of the fire season in August or September. So we're really seeing fires take off. We've also had some heat waves, particularly in the northern and interior parts of the state. So that's made it worse. And then on top of that, we know we're not going to get significant rain until maybe October or November, if not even later. So we still have a couple months of warming and drying to go. So the hills are brown, the trees are crackling, everything is just uh, thirsting for water. Right. And all this lack of water, of course, is just making wildfire conditions even worse. Yeah, so basically what the drought has done is helped to accelerate burning conditions. So fire officials are seeing fires ignite and take off with speed and intensity that they normally wouldn't see until August or September, which are typically among the worst months for fire. This is especially happening in higher elevation areas where not much snow fell this year, and it also melted early. 
Like last year, one of the first major fires of the season was the Apple Fire in Riverside County in August, and that topped 20,000 acres. This year, we started seeing fires that were topping 20,000 acres in early and mid-July. So because of the drought, we're seeing a fire season that started earlier, will probably last longer, and is also looking like it will be characterized by larger, more intense fires like we saw last year. So how bad is this drought historically? Yeah, so there was a study uh, last year in the journal Science. Researchers analyzed tree ring records from trees across Western North America to reconstruct soil moisture over the last 1,200 years. And their research suggested that in 2000 to 2018, that was the second driest period eclipsed only by a mega drought in the late 1500s. And this drought looks like it may be shaping up to be drier and hotter than the 2000 to 2018 drought. And so you might say, okay, there's a drought. Does it really matter how dry it is or how hot it is? Researchers say yes. When they're looking at things like the level of water in our reservoirs and the impacts on wildlife, native fish like salmon, experts are saying that year two of this drought is looking more like year three or four of the 2000 to 2018 drought. So I guess the question now is how long does it last? So 1,200 years ago, that's what, the 900s? William the Conqueror hasn't even gone to England yet. No one gets it. It's okay, we'll move on. We'll have more after this break. We're back with Masters of Disasters, Drought Week Edition. Although Ron Lynn and Rosanna Shaw now cover earthquakes and the coast, respectively, they were the wonder twins of water coverage for the LA Times the last time California went through a historic drought, which was just five years ago. Eep. Ron, what makes this drought so different? And, and did we see it coming? Yeah, we should have seen it coming, but we're Californians, so we always forget the disaster once it actually happens and we think we've recovered from it. So I'm a lifelong Californian. I've had four droughts in my lifetime in California, and it's been back-to-back-to-back droughts that are really catching up with us. And now we know that three of them have happened since 2007. And so what's really bad about this particular drought is the fact that we've had so many droughts all crammed into basically the past decade and a half. And a whole water conveyance system, you know, usually the whole thing relies on counting on the fact that we have lots of ice and snow in our greatest mountain range, the Sierra. And it slowly melts through the spring and summer and trickles down to the reservoirs. But for the first time in what seems like forever, it didn't happen that way. The soil was so dry that the melting water was sucked right into the ground and there was none left over for the reservoirs. And so the fact that things are getting so extreme means that the stuff that we've experienced before in previous droughts they're happening a lot faster and it's a lot more intense than what's ever happened before. Yeah, California, historically, to make us into the livable place that we're at, we take water from one river, we dry out another lake, and we use reservoirs and aqueducts to just bring it all here. And I remember in 2015, you actually took a plane to see the Colorado River Aqueduct, which is one of the big aqueducts that bring water to Southern California. How's that system looking right now? Yeah, so the thing to think about for Southern California is that there's two big aqueducts that bring water to us, right? It's the California Aqueduct that brings water from Northern California, and it's the Colorado River Aqueduct. And these two aqueducts combined give us like half of our water supply. And 
it's an amazing kind of system. It runs for you know hundreds of miles. Think of the Hoover Dam, and there's a, a giant reservoir. It's it's the largest reservoir in the U.S. and it's what has made life in Southern California, and Arizona and Nevada like possible. Lake Mead has basically come down to the lowest levels ever since Hoover Dam was created. And that's a big, big problem to the point that at a certain point, if there's not enough water, there's going to be severe reductions for Arizona and Nevada and California. And that's going to put us in a situation that we haven't really experienced in our lifetimes. It's not just drought here in the West, it's across the world. Wasn't it like in 2018 or something where Cape Town, South Africa, they were literally about to run out of water at some point? Yeah, and in fact, I was actually, I took a vacation (laughs) to that part of the world. And that was one of the things that, you know, I was like super, super worried about. There were actually parts of town, if I recall correctly, that really did run out of water to the point where, you know, tourists coming in, they were really asked to, you know, really try to conserve water. In places like Taiwan right now, they, until recently, were experiencing a dramatic drought. And so one of the things to kind of think about for California is that California was built in an era where, as it turns out, there was a lot more water during those decades at that time. And so now we're kind of at the stage where we're realizing, you know what, we have this really bad relationship with our water. Not only have We planted lawns throughout the state just because that's the way they did it in England or on the East Coast where it rains so much of the year. That's like really a terrible thing you can do in California. And so there's a lot of unhealthy relationship with this water. One thing to think about during our last drought that really kind of stunned me is that for more than 100 years, farmers in California's Central Valley have actually been mining water that has seeped down underneath the Central Valley for tens of thousands of years. They've been extracting that water, and there's no way of really filling that back up. And so California has had this really kind of bad relationship with its water to the point that, you know, we really have to think about what is the next century going to look like? And we have to really realize that the next century is going to be very different from this century. I'm glad you brought up England because that ties back to William the Conqueror. Rosanna, how was it covering the last route? Where do I even start? There was that 25% reduction order that was just rippled across the state in so many different ways. There was all the water shaming and the lawn shaming and all the heartbreaking stories of people in more remote areas actually running out of water. I, I remember one of the first places I got sent to when we hit year four drought emergency was Fresno, one of the more major cities in the Central Valley. And oh my God, it was like 106 degrees that day. And everything looked like it had been covered by one of those dusty, yellowy Instagram filters. All the lawns had dried up. The air was just so dry. You could feel it in your throat. Isn't that filter 1976? Maybe Valencia. I don't know my Instagram filters. I'm actually a very old millennial. (laughs) But yeah, the air was so dry, you could feel it in your throat. And the city literally had water police issuing hundreds of penalties to people who weren't following the water restrictions. And the city even had like this mantra, don't frown on brown, that I heard everywhere on TV and the radio. 
I also remember standing on Donner Summit. It's one of the snowiest places in the country where, you know, it was once covered with so much snow that the Donner Party had to resort to cannibalism to survive. And when I got there that year, the peak was brown. The ski resorts up there, like, made this thin strip of man-made snow to try to stay open that season, but even that didn't last too long. That was back in 2015, 2014, all that era. Now, even though you don't cover drought per se, how are you seeing it play out right now? Yeah, I might be speaking from my COVID LA bubble, but I still feel like a lot of folks right now are in the denial phase, which we also saw a lot of back in the last drought. Ignorance is bliss, right? Like, let's just not think about this until the voluntary cutbacks become mandatory cutbacks and everything is suddenly brown and yellow. There's this famous Steinbeck quote from East of Eden that captures just how Californian it is to swing from one extreme to the other and how we so quickly forget, like Ron said earlier. You know, the quote goes, it never failed that during the dry years, the people forgot about the rich years. And when the wet years returned, they lost all memory of the dry years. It was always that way. But didn't Ma Jo said that we're the chosen people? (laughs) No comment. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, chosen people, grapes of wrath. John Steinbeck, probably the best author of California, East of Eden. I wish we were in a state of more Cannery Row than East of Eden, which actually is a very, very sad book. To all of you, then, you all cover like existential threats. They're always creeping up. In many ways, drought is probably the most insidious because one way or another, We have water. Earthquakes, we only remember earthquakes when they happen. Wildfires, they're like big and spectacular. Coastal erosion in many ways is like the opposite of drought because it's chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. What can we do? Well, I think one of the things that, you know, if you have a house and you somehow manage to escape the last drought without tearing out your lawn, this would be a good time to do it for the sake of California. There's a reason why you want to do that. It's just so wasteful. It just doesn't make any sense for California. And now's the time to go ahead and like rip that lawn out and put some drought tolerant native plants there. And then the other thing would just be to to do normal things that would save us all money, right? I mean, when you're doing a load of laundry, make sure it's full. When you're doing a load in the dishwasher, you know, make sure it's full. And even just, you know, keeping an eye on those showers. I mean, yeah, you could argue that individual actions like this alone don't really save that much water. But if you think about it for everybody, if everyone is really doing it, that makes a big difference. And that's a fact. I mean, we've seen how even after our last drought, Californians are using less water than they did before the last drought. So that's a big success. And if we can even do things better on top of that, that'd be a good thing. Rosanna, what about you? What can we be doing right now to like try to fight this drought? Yeah, I'll focus on the individual actions too, which, as Ron alluded to, isn't going to solve the systemic problems and existential kind of reframing that we really have to think about going forward in our relationship with water. But on an individual level, I am very worried about human-caused fires. I was just working the 4th of July shift earlier this month and holding my breath the entire day, hoping no one did anything stupid with fireworks. I I feel like every day since then has had some level of that anxiety because there is uncertainty with the way we spark something. So please don't be that person that sets off a fire during a drought in California. And please don't be that police department that blows up a bunch of fireworks in a working class neighborhood as well. Alex, what about you? 
I've been told that you don't need to pack 10 gallons a day in your earthquake shelter. <laughs> Someone's been listening to LA Times uh, projects about earthquakes. <laughs> but yeah, I know. I mean, that's great advice from Rosanna. Don't start fires. Um, they've been getting really big and out of control and becoming dangerous for firefighters. We've already had a lot of people actually lose their homes this year. Like a, a couple dozen, at least. You profiled actually someone who lost their home in one of the fires recently. Yeah, I've spoken to a couple people. And what we're finding is these fires are moving so quickly that they're not having a lot of time to evacuate. One of the guys I talked to had about 10 minutes. Another woman had 30. So I guess another thing is, you know, really, if you live in one of these high fire prone areas, be ready to leave. You might not get a lot of notice. So definitely can't hurt to have your go bag ready and to be paying attention to emergency alerts from local law enforcement and really just staying vigilant. And Alex, what's that CAL FIRE stat? I don't know if you know it off the top of your head. I feel like we can never repeat this enough, but like 97, 98, 96, I forget what the number is, percent of fires in California started by people. It is. It's definitely over 90 percent. So I do think they lump in um, institutional fires, like fires that are caused by power lines. I believe those all go in the human caused buckets. So it's not always just one person doing something that starts a fire. Sometimes it's, you know, our power infrastructure that starts a fire. But yes, overall, in general, other than fires caused by lightning, which is a very small percentage, those are the natural fires. The vast majority of them are caused by humans in some way. And, you know, one thing to think about is that, you know, if you're doing gardening, like you could, you know, scrape a shovel on something sharp and cause a spark and that could cause a fire. Or if you're hauling something on a trailer and you let a, a chain kind of swing in the distance, like that can cause a spark. So like just extraordinarily, like be super, super careful about anything that could cause a spark that could cause a disaster and it cause a lot of people to die. Just like a gender reveal party last year that caused a horrible, horrible fire. And recently they got charged with involuntary manslaughter because a firefighter died fighting that fire. Moral of the story, people, just don't do fires anymore, please. To our masters, how scared should we be about the drought? I think people should be pretty scared. In fact, you know... That's the most Ron response ever. <laughs> I mean, part of it is that it is super easy as Californians to, like, put the disaster in a box and, like, put it away. This is what we do with earthquakes all the time. And it's horrific, right? I'm guessing there are still a bunch of people who are like, drought's over when it was over, and they just didn't really even think about it. And so, like, for our lifetime, for, like, the next generation... We can't be drawing down on the Colorado River or the Sierra Nevada in any way. Like, I am so confident. And in fact, the water managers in Southern California have said, we cannot expect the lake behind Hoover Dam to fill up to the top in our lifetime. Like, they're pretty certain of that. So knowing that, please, you know, realize that we have to readjust our relationship with water. We'll be back with some optimism after this break. And now comes our traditional end to Masters of Disasters, where we ask Ron, Rosanna, and Alex what's making them happy right now, because we all need that. Let's start with Alex. So I'm really excited about my vacation that is coming up. I'm going to be visiting my family in Philly. I haven't seen them in a couple of years at this point because of COVID. I can't wait. I'm going to bring my dog, Steve. He's going to be on the airplane for the first time. Should be interesting. 
Does Philly have any droughts besides the 76ers championship drought? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anything about sports. (laughs) You're probably the only Philadelphian who doesn't care about sports. Rosanna, what's making you happy right now? I have been updating my stash of cheesy ocean jokes, which has definitely been sparking joy and something that everyone should have in their back pocket. Gustavo, what do you call two octopuses that look exactly alike? Calamari. I tentacle. Ay, ay, ay. I'm speechless, but I- I'll, re- I'll go with a drought joke. The coast wildfires and earthquakes walk into a bar and droughts the bartender and earthquake says hey drought can i have some water and drought says no and uh coast says why not and drought says well because i'm a drought Boo! <laughs> well at least at least ron thinks everything's funny <laughs> now we know what makes ron happy right now bad jokes but ron what really brings you joy right now so my vacation's also coming up too, but I'm putting a little bit of disaster in it too. So my friend's getting married in uh, Seattle, so we're going to take a road trip up to a bunch of national parks. And so two of the things I'm very excited about is seeing a bunch of volcanoes, so like Lassen and Crater Lake, lava beds. And the other thing is that when we come back down, we're going to go by uh, the coast, and I want to see a bunch of uh, communities along the shoreline that would be really hit hard by a tsunami, if a big tsunami happened. Uh, It's just something that I've always kind of wanted to see and also see kind of the challenges faced in those communities. Master Disasters, Volcano Edition and Tsunami Edition coming later on this summer if we survive the drought and the wildfires and hopefully there's no earthquake, but at least coastal erosion, we can wait maybe 50 more years. So... I want to thank all our Masters of Disasters as usual. Thank you, Ron Lynn, who covers earthquakes, Alex Wigglesworth on the wildfires, and Rosanna Shaw on the coast. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Now to the Tokyo Olympics. Faster, higher, stronger. And we're not talking about the COVID pandemic. All week, we're hearing from members of the U.S. Olympic squad, all from different sports, all with different dreams, ready to compete against the best in the world. My name is Richard Torres Jr. I am a 2020 USA Olympian. Uh, I fight for the super heavyweight division that is 91 plus kilos or 201 plus pounds. I haven't lost in the United States since I was 15 years old and I'm 22 now. I've been to 13 different countries with USA Boxing. Uh, I'm going into the Olympics as a third seed. Hi, I'm Richard Torres Sr. I'm from Tulare, California. I'm 55 years old and I'm operating and run the Tulare Athletic Boxing Club. I've been coaching my son since he's in the womb. I grew up watching my dad training people and he got in there one day and I remember I was just running around the the gym because that was like my second home you know we just we just uh, I would play over there sometimes and I saw my dad sparring one of the guys and I just watched for a second a split second and my dad slips the, the punch and he hits him with a body shot and the guy's on the ground and he's on the ground hard it was a mean punch and the guy was huffing and puffing and I thought that was the coolest thing ever, if I'm being 100% honest. I thought that was, I thought that was a bee's knees, you know? And so uh, from that point forward, you know, I wanted to get in the ring. The pressure is, you know, you get, you get the calls, you get the, 
the looks from people saying, hey, how can you have your son in there? You know, don't, aren't you scared about him getting hurt? Aren't you scared about this and that? And it says, you know what? I'm, uh, if you want to be scared about things in life, you could be scared of a lot of stuff. You know, him driving the car, him going across the street. You know, it's it's a structured, uh, organized sport that we do. And yeah, unfortunately, the idea is you got to punch somebody in the head, in the face. You know, I've always told my son, if you get to the point where you tell me you don't want to box anymore, I'm all right with that. But once you turn 16, 17, 18, you start fighting grown men. And that's a different story. So now that it's his choice, he wants to box from this point on. I'm just happy to be along for the ride. I went to the Olympic trials. The road to try to get to the Olympics was, was uh, strenuous, hard. I went in 1984, so that was a very strong team for the United States. And you know, losing in, in the quarterfinals in the Olympic trials uh, was heartbreaking. You know, you have the whole town depending on you. You have all your friends uh, counting on you. But it was a, it did allow me to to learn the system tournaments to go to and what to do and and i was able to pass that knowledge and the experience on to my son which he's been very successful yeah and my dad was actually uh, ranked fourth and fifth in the world in two different weight classes so uh he didn't go to the olympics but he was he was definitely up there as an amateur contender and you know it's just yeah it's everything that my dad's taught me and my grandpa's taught my dad so it's a it really is a generational thing My father, Manuel Torres Sr., first started boxing uh, approximately when he was 13 years old. My dad was kind of a whippersnapper, and he was kind of like, hey, I want to box. His uncle says, no, nah, you, you won't be any good at it. He goes, no, I want to box. So finally, the uncle says, okay, I'm going to teach you a lesson. So my dad's 13, 14, uncle's 18, and my uncle put the whooping on him. And my dad was very determined, hard-headed, and stubborn, and decided that he was going to get good at boxing. So he bought a pair of boxing gloves and walked around town challenging people or asking him, hey, you want to box? You want to box? And, and that turned into him uh, within a couple of years opening up the Tillery Boxing Club. And that was just for him to get more sparring partners. And uh, it turned into a gym. So we've been in existence on and off since 1945, the Tillery Athletic Boxing Club. And that being the case, uh, he had a love for it. And it just kind of passed down to us. He started uh, training boxers at our farmhouse in Tulare. And I recall the, the guys coming out and living on a farm 10 miles away from town, there wasn't very much to do for a small kid. And the older guys were coming around training, so I wanted to hang out with them. And I started doing exercises with them, push-ups, sit-ups, and just my little bit. And my dad finally asked me, hey, do you want to box? So with the regulations put in place for COVID, there is no outside person from uh, Japan able to go. So with that being said, no one, no one in my family can go. Uh, I bought this iPhone for him. He said that we can communicate via iPhone, so we'll be communicating that way. There's been so many things that I haven't been able to do. You know, I kind of cut out a lot of social life. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do a lot of things because I, I have a gold medal mindset is what we call it. And so I really wanted to show that putting in this work, putting in this time, putting in this effort, not just for me, but for my family, is validated and it was worth something. And so that's what I'm hoping to accomplish at the Olympics. Wishing all of our athletes the best of luck. Listen to each episode of The Times all the way to the end this week and hear more of the U.S. athletes going for the 2021 Tokyo Olympics gold. And don't forget, there's no such thing as fourth place unless you're a new daily podcast.
And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, we continue Drought Week with a visit to Oregon, where far-right activists are threatening Native American tribes over their water rights. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn and Denise Guerra. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Lauren Rabb and Shawnee Hilton. Our intern is Ashley Brown, and our theme music is by Andrew Eppen. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Please save water. Gracias. Gracias.